keeping his eyes on God and not on the things of this life. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, it affirms this truth with various examples of Abraham's adventures of faith. And I'm going to read from uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 11, verses 8 uh, through 11, and, and then again 17 through 18. But the cool thing about that is, as you look at Abraham's life and you think about these things that um, Abraham was able to do as he walked in faith, it's just an exciting reminder for us in our own lives how this life that God's called us to is truly an adventure. There's nothing boring, there's nothing mundane about being a Christian. And a Christian who lives their life in accordance to faith is going to be faced with challenges and exciting things on a daily basis. And with Abraham, it says, by faith in verse 8 of chapter 11, Abram, or Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, he went and obeyed even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He then lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For, why would he do this? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah, his wife, herself was barren, he was unable to become a father because he considered God faithful who had made the promise to him. And then in verses 17 and 18, it goes on and says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him. I'm pretty sure God's tested me in the same way with my own sons at a time or two. But God, when God tested him, he, he, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now, I point all of these things out again as we, as we enter into this next chapter, chapter 14, because this life of faith that God had called Abraham to live is the same kind, the same kind of life of faith that God has called us to live through his son, Jesus Christ. And through the example of Abraham's life, we see that a life lived in faith is really an enrollment in a school of faith. We're getting an education. It's an enrollment in a school in faith. And when we enroll ourselves in the school of faith, we never know what may happen next or what adventure God might call us to. In light of this, we can understand that God calls us into the school of faith because he wants us to mature. He wants us to grow in every area of our lives. But the fact of the matter is, maturity is, as you guys well know, growth, as you well know, maturity does not come easily. And there can be no growth without challenge. And there can be no challenge without change. Therefore, if our circumstances never changed, everything would be predictable. And the more predictable life becomes, the less challenges it presents. So the life of faith or the school of faith, which is full of adventure and full of God's blessing, presents challenges that keep us going and keeps us growing in our knowledge, in our relationship with God. The intended result, guys, 
This is what it all boils down to, because this is what we see evident in Abram's life. The intended result of this ongoing education that we receive in this, this walk or this life or this school of faith, the, on, the, the intended result is for us to know God in an intimate and personal way. That's the intended result. In addition to that, in addition to knowing God in an intimate and personal way, the result of enrolling in this school of faith or the growing or the maturing is for us to discover God's will and God's purpose for our lives. Also for us to learn how to listen, to hear, and how to better obey God. And ultimately for us to experience God's presence, God's wisdom, and God's limitless power as God works in and through us. These are the things that we read about in Genesis chapter 14. As we see Abram continue to walk in faith, and in this walking of faith here in chapter 14, what we see is Abraham's, if you're taking note, he's Abram's fulfilling three roles. One as a watcher, two as a warrior, and three as a worshiper of God. But more importantly, we see that in all three of these roles, Abram exercised faith in God, and he made the right decision because he responded and acted in accordance to faith. And if you follow with me in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the days of Aramaphil, king of Shinar, Erach, king of Eleazar, Ketelamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Sheber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, Zorah. And all of these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Sea of Salt. Verse 4, 12 years they served Ketelamar, in the 13th year they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Ketelamar and the kings that were, were with him came and attacked at came and attacked the Rephium in Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zurim in Ham, and Im in Shavah, Kirathaim, and the, Hor- the Horites in their mountains of Sire as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to, in- to En-Misphat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Malachites and all the Amorites, and dwelt in Hazeon Tamar. Verse 8, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zorah, they, they went out and joined together in the, ba- in the battle in the valley of Siddim against Ketelamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, uh, um, Amorelfel, <laughs> I was doing so good, Amorelfel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains, and then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, and dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word, we trust in you through the power of your Holy Spirit, to make truth known to us. God, we confess and believe that your word is truth, that it's inerrant, without error, that it speaks things to us, God, that not only reveal who you are, but your will for our lives. And that's what we desire, is to have you reveal yourself to us, to reveal 
your will to us, God, that you would speak these words through, through your Holy Spirit that are sharper than any two-edged sword, living and powerful so that they're able to do a work inside of us. God, it's your words that changes us, not mine. So I humbly submit myself to you, God, and call upon your name to, to do this work this morning, to teach us, to reveal truth. God, to grow us and to mature us as we walk in faith. God, show us what this means. Teach us, Lord, what you've called us to do as we wait for your return. And Father, as we know that your return is imminent, we look around and we see the state of the world around us. And God, we pray for, for understanding. We pray for more faith, God, to help us trust in you when it seems like so many things around us are completely out of control. And yet we know, God, that you're sovereign and that you're still reigning over all. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if we look at these first 12 verses that I read, we see recorded for us some events that really are documenting um, a war, the first war that the Bible documents. And remember, Genesis being a book of beginning, a book of first, we see another first here. But this is no way does this mean that this was the first war that mankind ever had. It, it simply means it's the first one that the Bible ever accounts and it does so because of Abram's and because of Lot's involvement. And through these events, we once again see the faithfulness of God to the promises that he had spoke to Abram. Considering it was in this situation, it was against all earthly odds that Abram was able to chase and pursue and defeat these armies that had joined together to war against Sodom and the combined forces of these other kings. Remember, God had told Abram when he first called him, he had told him that, that he would protect him, that he would curse those who cursed him and bless those who bless him. So with Abram's victory in the face of these overwhelming and, 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 and really odds that could not be beat in any kind of um, uh, in, in man's way, but only by God's way, we see God's promises being fulfilled to Abram here. We're shown that God's promises, which he had spoken to Abram, are promises that were faithful and promises that were true, promises that were reliable. And as we begin this chapter and start off by looking at the faithfulness of God, guys, don't forget that God is faithful to us as well. He's faithful to all of his promises, including all the ones that we've received through our faith in Jesus. Remember, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus Christ. And so through him, the amen or the yes God is spoken to us or spoken by us to the glory of God. And God has spoken promises to us. He's spoken promises to us through His Word. He's spoken promises to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's spoken promises to us through His Holy Spirit individually today that we can lay hold of that. Sometimes we go, God, I don't see how these are going to come to pass. But when we look by faith to what God has done and what God has promised us to do and what God has done for others, we can trust in the fact that He is faithful and reliable to bring them forth in our lives even when the odds seem that they cannot be beat. God is greater, and God is faithful. 
And so as we look at this first war that the Bible records, what we see, if it's a little confusing here as you read through it, but what we see, I'll just explain it real quick, is that there's two combined forces coming together against each other. It's a coalition of four kings with their armies against a coalition of five kings with their armies. And in the first four verses of this chapter, we read that there was this initial battle that was won by the alliance of four kings, which resulted in this this alliance of five kings who were, who were defeated, becoming the servants of King Ketelamor. Then in verse 4, we're told that they served him. These five kings were in subject or servitude to Ketelamor for 12 years. And in the 13th year, they, they, they had enough of it. They got tired of their enslavement, and they decided that they were going to rebel. And apparently this went on for about a year or so before Ketelamor, with his alliance, began to attack the cities of these other kings in an attempt to put down this rebellion and, he decided, and to bring them back into the, his, his servitude, into subjection to him. And this is what led to this major battle described for us in verses 8 through 10, if you can look there. That culminated, it says, in the valley of Siddim. And this is what brought Lot and Abraham into the story. Before we begin to look at these events as they relate to Lot and Abram, and, um, it's important to point out that the Bible records a great deal of history. The Bible records a great deal about the history of the world. But as the famous 19th century Christian leader, Arthur Tapin Pearson, once said, he said, history is his story. In other words, what is is written for us in regards to the historical things of the world here in the Word of God has been written to help us better understand how God worked out his great plan of salvation in this world. And in the Bible, historical facts like these are often windows for us into spiritual truths. They serve more than just recording historical facts. Now, if you've been coming to the church for a while, to our church for a while, you've probably heard me say that we can know for sure, we can know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the Bible is in fact the Word of God, and we can put our trust in it as it is completely accurate. And one of the reasons for this is the fact that the historical claims that the Bible makes has never been proven wrong. Any historical fact that the Bible has ever made, any historical claim that the Bible has ever made, has never been proven wrong. Why is that important? Because if it had, if you couldn't trust it with the historical claims that it makes, then why and how could you trust it in regards to the spiritual things that it says that we want to apply to our lives? But every historical claim that the Bible has made has has never been proven wrong, meaning the events, the places, and the people that it counts have been verified through other secular historical records and through archaeological finds. And I mention this again because this is also true in regards to these kings who have really hard names to pronounce. Their cities, which are also really hard to pronounce, And the places and the events surrounding them, they've been also verified through secular history and through archaeological finds. And I mention this because this was not the case. This was not verified until 1933. Because prior to 1933, historians had dismissed this biblical account of Ketelamer's campaign against Sodom and Gomorrah, and they dismissed it as fiction saying there's no other historical record to support it. 
But in 1933, in the ancient city of Marai, which is now modern-day Tel Harar, located in eastern Syria, it was discovered by archaeologists, the ancient city of Marai in 1933. And at that time, archaeologists found the palace of Aramaphil, king of Shinar, the one who's mentioned here. Aramaphil, as you guys know, if you're historians at all, he's also known as Hammurabi. And he was the sixth king of the Babylonian Empire, and he reigned, historically we know that he reigned for 43 years, from 1792 B.C. to 1752 B.C. And in that palace, in his palace, one of the greatest archaeological finds was discovered. And they excavated a library there that contained over 25,000 tablets, letters, and historical records, some of which documented and confirmed these events that we read about here in Genesis chapter 14, once again proving the Bible to be accurate and true. If you, find, if you wish to find out more about this, I would suggest a book to you written by Jared um, Gertu, G-E-R-T-O-U-X. And his book is called Abraham and Ketelamar, Chronological, Historical, and Archaeological Evidence. Now, I point all of these things out because these kinds of evidence support the fact that the Bible is truth. And it reminds us that we have a reasonable faith to which we buy can then live our lives. And when we consider these historical events in relationship to Lot and Abram, we see that God had something special in mind for Lot, as he, according to verse 12, if you look there, became a prisoner of this war. Remember, Lot had first looked towards Sodom, and, and, and he moved near it, or towards it, setting up his camp, we're told last week when we read through chapter 13, in the plains of Jordan, just outside of the city of Sodom. But it wasn't long before Sodom, or before Lot moved into the city to live with these, it says, exceedingly and wicked people. And even though Second Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, describes Lot as a righteous man who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked as he lived there, we know that when Lot moved into Sodom, he moved out of God's will. And he suffered consequences. But getting to this place where he was inside the city of Sodom and outside of the will of God, it was, as we see Lot's life, a progression of little steps, was it not? It was a progression of little steps. And, and I point this out because any one of us can also progress to this place of being out of God's will, just like Lot had. When... And this happens when we lose our focus, when we are not looking at the things of this life with the same eternal perspective that Abraham did. Remember, Abram is characterized as one who watched this temporary life pass him by as he looked to and lived for the eternal things of God. But this was not the case with Lot. Lot was different. And his progressions of little steps that took him and takes us also out of God's will is often referred to as something that we would call today as backsliding, right? 
And when backsliding begins, the Bible teaches this, guys, it starts, it, 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 there's, an, there's an order, there's a pattern. And it says that it first starts backsliding, getting out of God's will in any way, in any form, or any fashion, first begins with some type of friendship with the world. And then it moves to the love of the world, and sadly, that friendship, that love which progresses, ultimately leads to a conformity with the world. We see this true in, in Lot's life, and this is what the Word of God tells us. And when Lot separated from Abram and moved towards Sodom, this is when he entered into a friendship with the world. But in James chapter 4, 4, it warns against this and says, Do you, know not, do you not know that friendship with the world is, is, is enmity with God, or you become an adversary with God? He says there in James, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world, he makes himself an enemy of God. But Lot did not remain in the plains of Jordan, outside of the city. He eventually ended up within the, inside the city because he desired or he loved, it says, what Sodom had to offer him. First, he says, I'm just going to buddy up to him. I'm just going to be friends. There's still this, this separation, right? But then the lusts inside of him, the desires inside of him took over. He loved what Sodom had to offer. And the same thing will happen to us when we take steps towards the world. But in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it tells us, it says clearly, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the life. And it is not of the Father, but of the world. And he says, don't do this because he says the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And we know, because we know the story, that Sodom, even though it made it through this war, that it would be a city that would pass away. Sadly, Lot's next step led to conformity from friendship to love or desire for the things of the world to a friendship, to a love that led to a conformity. And when we get to chapter 19, we read more of this because we're told that Lot's conformity with the Sodomites was revealed as he is then seen sitting inside the city gates, not only as an active citizen of, a citizen of Sodom, but probably one who was even in a place of authority as a judge at the city gates over those within the city. But we're warned against this. We're warned against this conformity, are we not, guys? Just like we're warned about friendship with the world and a love of the world, we're warned about being conformed to this world. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He says, which is a reasonable service. And he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Now, the thing about sin, and you guys probably know this because we've all sinned, right? The thing about sin is that it tricks us. Sin tricks us into thinking and believing that what we're doing or what we're going after that is not good is really good right? It tricks us. And this was also true for Lot, who believed that he and his family would be safer inside the city walls of Sodom, rather than living in a tent like his uncle Abram. However, we clearly see that Sodom turned out to be a place of danger in more than one way. But the thing for us to notice is that Lot's capture 
Lot being taken as a prisoner of this war was God's way of disciplining him. It was God's way of reminding Lot, he said, telling him and saying, hey, hey, listen, you have no business living in this city. You have no business being in Sodom. And because God loves us, we should also expect, as the Bible tells us, that, that God is going to discipline us when we don't listen to him or when we've been tricked by our sin and we give in to the temptation when we don't listen to his rebukes and when God disciplines us, guys, it's because he wants what's best for us. He wanted something better for Lot. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32, it also tells us that, that, that God will discipline us, listen, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So even though God allowed for Lot to be taken captive, we see it truly, we should see it truly as an act of God's grace. Lot being taken as a prisoner of war was truly an act of God's grace. Why? Because it was an opportunity for him to then be rescued by Abram, the warrior. And this is what we read of as we continue on in verse 13. It says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew for he dwelt in the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. And he went and pursued as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, and he and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as of Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all of the goods, and he brought back his brother Lot and all of his goods, as well as all the women and the people. I'm going to stop there. It's important for us to see. I, I love this, this Abraham or Abram the warrior, a warrior who lived by faith. Not only was he a watcher who kept his eyes on God and watched the world kind of pass by. Not, and, and I love that Abram was also the warrior because we see that as he was a watcher, he just didn't stand far off and go, oh, I have no business here in this world that I'm in. And I point that out and I love that because unfortunately there's a lot of Christians today who believe that as watchers of eternal things of God, being in the world and not of the world, they, they believe that, our, that we're called to be separate in the sense that not that we're to live sanctified lives, holy and separate from the world, but that we're to isolate and separate ourselves completely from anything that goes on in this world that we're called to live in, which is completely wrong. And it's important for us to see that Abram did not get involved in, in this war until he heard a about Lot being taken captive until he heard that Lot, his brother, his nephew, had been captured. But as soon as he had heard of Lot's capture, he went to rescue him. And Abram's example reminds us that when a believer sets them apart, when a believer, when we, as followers of Jesus Christ, when we set ourselves apart from this world in a godly way, it means that we then have a responsibility and a power to help a brother who has fallen. Remember, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 really tells us this. It says, Brethren, church, 
If a man is overtaken in his trespasses, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And obviously, this is not something that we do in our own strength. It has to be a work of God, God working in us and through us as we go to battle in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, for others. And this was exactly what God did in and through Abram. And we see that Abram's victory that we read about here was an awesome, miraculous, mighty work of God. When we look at the victory that God gave him, it's clear that it was a miracle, not only because Abram's forces were 318, which had to overcome a number that was much greater than them, a, a force that had just defeated five kings in all of their armies, but also we see that it was a miraculous work of God because of what we read in verse 14, if you look there, when it tells us that they went in pursuit, Abraham's forces, Abraham's men, as far as Dan. Now, when you do the math here, when you do the geography and figure that out, guys, that's 140 miles north of Hebron. 140 miles. That's greater than the distance between here and Denver. And they set out on foot to pursue this army and those who had been taken captive. <laughs> and they did so against all odds just by reaching them. And then in verse 15, we're told that upon reaching these these four armies, these four kings, that Abram then divided his forces in order to attack them, one from the front and one from the rear. And they continued the attack, pursuing them as far as Horba, which is into Syria, which is an additional 100 miles north of Dan. So they fought in pursuit for an additional 100 miles after they came in contact with this army, with this force. So by faith in God and through the, through the limitless power of God, Abram overcame not only an enemy that was greater him, but, but he was able to cover 240 miles while doing it. It's miraculous. In doing so, Abram freed Lot and all the others who had been taken captive, and he was able to recover all that had been stolen, we're told. You see, in light of this, we see that even though Abram was separated from the world, guys, he was not indifferent. He was not indifferent to what was going on in the world around him. He didn't stick his head in the sand. Even though Abraham, Abram was separate and lived separate from the world as a watcher of the eternal things and for the eternal things of God, he was not indifferent to what was going on in the world around him. Furthermore, Abram being a pilgrim and a stranger in the land, he did not use this fact that he was a citizen of a heavenly kingdom as an excuse for inaction in the life that God had called him here to live. And, and if we do, if we do this, well, let's just put it this way. By Abram's example, we see a couple of important things very clearly. The first is that as Christians, we have no right to, to refuse or to carry out our share of the common burdens of this life. As Christians who are of a head, of a, have a heavenly citizenship, we have, we have no reason, no excuse, no reason, no excuse to say that it's none of my business when we see things going on in this world that are unjust or wrong. 
no right to refuse to carry our share of the common burdens of this life. And if we do, if we do, you know what? Then we will never be the salt of the earth and the light of the world that Jesus himself said that we must be. In addition to this, Abram's example shows us how how sacrificial service is one way that we can show the love of God. And I think we know this in our heads. But it's exampled for us here that we're called to the sacrificial service of others. And, and Abram examples this. He shows us that, 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 that sacrificial service is one way that we can show the love of God to others. I say this because, remember, Abram treated his, his, his nephew with love. Back in chapter 13, when he gave Lot the first choice of the land, back in, in verse 9 of chapter 13, and again here we see that he treated Lot with love, even risking his own life and his own resources to rescue him. And guys, remember, Abram did this even though Lot had not been very kind to him. And the fact of the matter is, is that Abram had every excuse to let his nephew, nephew suffer the painful consequences of his own stupid decisions. And I put it that way because, because often that's how we think. When we stand afar off and don't intercede into someone's life, when we have the ability and the resources to do so, we sometimes dismiss it and excuse it because we go, they need to suffer the consequences of their own stupid decisions. Guys, that's not grace. That's not mercy, and that's not what God calls us to. But like verse 16 says, Lot, it says, was his brother. He was his family member. It was his blood. And Abram practiced brotherly love, and we see that he overcame evil with good, just like we are commanded to do in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, which says this. It says, repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, Paul writes and says, as if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You don't drive out darkness with more darkness. You drive out the darkness with light. Now, if you remember from last week's study, I pointed out when we looked at Abram's life and the characteristics of him being a godly man, a man who lived by faith, especially in relationship to his nephew Lot, I pointed out that Abram was a peacemaker, right? Not a troublemaker. However, in light of this, it might seem contrary to see a peacemaker like Abram also be a man who was prepared for war. He was prepared for war. But he did not fight from selfish motives just to get personal gain. He fought, he went to battle because he loved Lot and because he wanted to help him. And when we consider these characteristics of Abram, uh, of Abram's life and of Abram as the man, we have to also consider the characteristics here as is defined for us of Abram's army of his men. And in doing so, we see what it takes in the spiritual realm where we know that the battles really take place, right? Because we don't battle against flesh and blood. We, we battle against 
against principalities and, and, and spiritual powers of darkness, the Bible says. And so, and so when, we see, when we look at Abram's army and the characteristics that they put forth or we're told about them here, we see or what we're being told is what, it, what is needed in the spiritual realm to have victory in this world that we live in today. And in verse 14, if you look there, the first thing that we're told about these 318 men, it says that they were born in Abram's house. And spiritually speaking, this reminds me of 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, guys. Because in 1 John chapter 4, verse 5, it says this. It says, whatever is born of God, you and I, through our faith in Jesus Christ, whoever or whatever is born of God, he says, overcomes the world. The point is, our physical birth, it made us, the Bible says, children of Adam, descendants of Adam. And Adam was one who was defeated in this life, defeated by sin, defeated in death. But our rebirth, which comes through our faith in Jesus, has made us children of God and victors with Jesus, who has already, the Bible says, defeated every one of our enemies. We fight, we battle from the place of victory. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through, 1, through, through 21, it really declares this saying that Jesus has already overcome every enemy and he shares his victories with all of us who put our trust in him, all of us who live by faith. Another thing that we're told in verse 14 about Abram's army is that they were, is that they were armed. They had weapons. And the fact of the matter is, is it takes more than a passion and a courage to win a war. You can be passionate and you can have courage, but if you don't have no weapons, you probably ain't going to win the war. You must have effective equipment. And this is also true in regards to our spiritual walk. And as soldiers in God's army were commanded in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, to what? To put on the whole armor of God. And to use the spiritual weapons that God has provided us with. Remembering that 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5 through 5 says, saying that our weapons are spiritual and we use them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in our own strength, not in our own might, but by His strength, by His might. Also in verse 14, we read that these men were trained. And the fact of the matter is, is even the best weapons are useless in the hands of someone who does not know how to use them. Even the best weapons are useless in the hands of those who do not know how to use them. And the same is true in regards to the spiritual weapons of our warfare. And you know what, guys? This is our training ground. The church. It's the training ground. It's a place where we come to learn about God's Word. It's a place where we come to learn and how to pray. It's a place where we come to learn how to recognize who the enemy is. It's a place where we come to learn how to follow orders as a soldier in the army of Jesus Christ. It's a training ground. We get built up and equipped for the battles that God calls us to go out and fight. When we go out from this refuge, from the sanctuary into the world, we go out as warriors, not just as watchers. Those who are equipped and prepared and trained for the battle, we go out as victors. The last thing we see about this army guy is that they were united. They were single-minded. 
they were united, they were single-minded. One force with one leader. In other words, they knew who their leader was and they knew what their goal was. And in regards to the church, guys, don't forget, Jesus is the leader. He's the head. He's the one that gives the commands. He's who we follow. He's the one that leads us. And our goal, he says, is to tell people about God's love, about God's uh, forgiveness, and about his free gift of salvation by grace through faith in him. And when we as God's people are united together in that, in our love for God, in our love for one another, and in our love for the lost who are in this world, the Bible tells us that there's nothing that can stand in our way. I'm going to end with this if the worship team comes up. In verses 18 through 24, it goes on and it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tithe. Abram gave him a tithe of all. And the king of Sodom said, of Sodom said to Abram, it's after the battle, after the victory, he said, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. This is the king of this evil and wicked city. Don't forget. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I raise my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of the heaven and earth. In other words, that's who I swear my allegiance to. To God. I raise my hand to God. I swear my allegiance to him, God Most High, the possessor of the heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Guys, it was the Scottish preacher, famous Scottish preacher, Andrew Bonar, who said this. He said, let us be as watchful after victory as before the battle. Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Why would he say that? He says that because what he, what he knew, what Andrew Bonner knew, is the same thing that we read about here in the text. In that, after following this victory, we see that Abraham faced a temptation, a great temptation. As he met the king of Sodom, who in Scripture really is a, is a type or a picture of Satan. And it's, and it's usually true in regards to our own lives, guys, that Satan will tempt us. He'll come to us. He'll try to cause us to fall in this point of vulnerability. And that usually comes right after a great spiritual victory. Who here has ever been on a retreat? Any kind of get away and get with God experience. Leave the world behind where you experience God's presence in a new and wonderful way. And I don't know about you, but nine times out of ten, when you come back down off that mountaintop, back to the real world, and you engage the battle, who's there waiting for you? Satan. And he wants nothing more to steal and rob from you the work that God's just done, the victory that God's done in and through you to steal your joy, to steal your peace, to get your minds off of the things that God had just done and onto the world or onto him. That's what we read about here with this, with this Sodom, the king of Sodom. 
He's setting Abram up. And Abram knew it. He said, man, I follow God, not you. And by the way, I swear to him that if I was to take anything, to you, I won't take anything from him because, from you because if you do, you're going to say that you're the one that brought my increase. You're the one that brought my wealth. You're the one that provided for me. And Abram knew that it was God who was his provider and he wasn't going to give this guy even an inch into his life. Abram was in the world, but he was not of the world. He lived separate from the world. And if Abram had taken these things then all the blessings of God that had poured out on Abram and the glory that had came from him, it could have been somehow counted or the king of Sodom could have, could have taken credit for it. Guys, the point is, and there's whole much more here, but we run out of time because Isaac just went way too long. <laughs> See, the good thing about having a guest speaker is they can become your, your, your scapegoat, right, Isaac? But guys, we, we, we have to stay focused on God before the battle and after the battle. And what we see in this last verses is we see that, that Abram is willing to give all the glory to God. We see that ultimately this flows out of his heart that was in love with God. His heart that was a worshiper of God. It came naturally because he was a worshiper of God. That's what we're called to. We're called to be worshipers of God. And we have every reason to worship him, do we not? Because of who he is. Because of what he's done because of the promises that he's made to us, because he's brought us into his family and called his sons and daughters because of his grace through faith, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. And even when things seem insurmountable, even when things seem out of control, God is still able. And that's why we live by faith and not by fight, by sight. That's why we live as watchers. That's why we fight as God's warriors, and that's why we worship him as Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we worship you this morning, and we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And with this last song, God, I pray that we would lift our voices as an act, as a demonstration of our worship of you, of, of, of singing of your glory, of giving you all the credit for everything that you've done in our lives and done through our lives. God, without you, there would be nothing and we would be nothing. Father, we love you. And we, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship, guys. Will you stand with us? The sun.